What I hope for is that one day people understand textile waste in the same way that they understand ocean plastics. Being in a corporate, the things that bothered me the most was not being able to see the change that I was making. My personal purpose has always been sustainability. And this is the reason I became a chemical engineer. I can't speak for everyone else and say that they should also solve the world's problems. It really depends on your personal passion. If that is making the world a better place, then absolutely you should try and solve that problem through your business. One of the big things we've realized with Cladily is that education around the topic is key. So communication with regards to education will be one of the forefronts of what we do. Welcome to Speak Like a CEO. One billion garments are produced every year and 87% of all material used ends up in landfills. At the same time, plastics are produced from fossil fuels contributing to 20% of global carbon emissions. Today, Lena and Oliver talk with Alina Bassi, founder of Clyderly, a Berlin-based startup that solves both of these environmental problems at once by recycling textile waste into an oil-based plastic alternative. Learn all about how Alina found her purpose. Networking helped her get her business off the ground, her leadership style, and how to communicate the new and sustainable material effectively. Enjoy the episode. Hi and welcome to another episode of Speak Like a CEO. I'm Lena Kulsett and I'm here with Oliver Aust, the CEO of Ewipso. Hey Oliver. Hey Lena. Our guest today is Alina Bassi. She's the founder of Clyderly and originally from London, she founded Clyderly in 2019 in Berlin with the goal to use her knowledge as a chemical engineer to solve the problem of clothing waste from the fashion industry and thus save tons of CO2 emissions. She's also a founding member of Tech in Color, an initiative supporting female founders of color to raise investment a Google for Startups female founder alumni, and more recently she joined the Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2020 in the manufacturing and industry category. Hi, Alina. Hey, thanks for having me. Sounds like you've got a lot going on right now. Um, what's the most exciting thing happening for you right now? Um, I think at the moment, uh, the thing that's exciting me the most is the fashion brands I'm getting to talk to. Um, probably just because I'm a bit of a fan of the ones I get to speak to. So, you know, um, getting getting the chance to talk to them is probably, you know, a dream I had many years ago and is actually now coming true. You, you don't seem to be a, a critic of the fashion industry uh, or, or reject the fashion industry outright, but you identified a big problem with it, right? To be honest, um, the conversations I have make me less critical about them because to be honest, they are trying their best. And if there aren't enough solutions out there to support that, then um, it's not necessarily easy. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like we've been um, welcomed very well by many of the brands. They totally understand the problem and are very um, much up for making this change. And so that's what makes me more positive about the problem. Let's take a step back. What exactly is Clyderly? So Clyder is the German word for, I guess, clothes. Um, and I'm guessing that's where that came from. But what exactly do you do? Sure. So yeah, my, my background has really been in um, recycling waste into uh, biofuels and turning household waste into energy as a, as a chemical engineer. Um, so having designed processes at scale that recycled coffee waste to biofuels, um, I saw the problem around textile waste firsthand uh, during a trip to Tanzania and uh, was at that point, well, probably subliminally, you know, having seen things uh, there, I realized that actually I think there's a problem that I can solve using my engineering knowledge. So essentially we recycle textile waste, uh, which can be overproduction from the fashion industry 
defected goods or even offcuts um, uh, from the production floor and recycle this into a plastic alternative, um, hence we're solving sort of two environmental problems at once. And what will happen? To, so you, you could recycle it. Is, is the process already live? So is that already happening or have you developed the process and you're now looking to apply it? No, uh, the process is working. Uh, we have filed a patent and we have actually produced a few prototype products with different manufacturing partners who we are now actually actively selling. So um, one of them is coat hangers, which we're offering back to the fashion industry as a nice, clever way for them to recycle polystyrene clothing hangers, which also end up in landfills. We're also producing um, with a Paris-based partner called Exact World um, anti-theft security tags, which although it's a very um, niche product you, you might not even think about, it's made out of ABS plastic. And then we're also working with other furniture brands to produce furniture lines for them. So lots of projects working all in parallel. It makes sense that people are quite positive about all of these initiatives as it clearly is trying to support what um, these brands and companies and products are trying to do in the first place. How do you go into those conversations, though? What's the pitch to work with Clyderly, for example? Um, really, it's uh, we can help you solve two problems at once and provide you with a tangible solution that your customers can see firsthand. So if you have a clothing hanger made from Clyderly or if you have an anti-theft security tag with our material, it's something that the customer is seeing directly when they go to the store. So it's a... Um, a way of telling the story without, you know, trying to explain that you've somehow changed something in your supply chain that maybe someone doesn't fully understand, but it's very graspable for the end consumer. And how do you intend to get the word out? I mean, you need to convince, on the one hand, uh, the big fashion houses to have a big impact, and then you need to get the story out to customers as well. So they, be they become aware of the problem, but of also of the solution that Clyderly offers. Yeah, um, so we tend to do multiple things. One of them is um, we share a lot of information on our, our website, our, so, uh, our blog and our social media to kind of explain the problem um, because we realize that whilst our core mission is to solve the problem, it's also to actually educate people around it um, because not everyone fully understands the problem of textile waste. So we provide education on the topic uh, for the end customers and uh, for the in order to be able to make it understandable, we also have the logo placed onto each product that says made from recycled clothing by Clyderly. So if anyone wants to understand more, they can go on the website. Having a look at your website and your social media channels, it's clear that you've also put a lot of thought into the design and how everything looks. You know, the website is laid out super nicely, really like large, bold statistics in your face. And the same actually with your Instagram as well. Um, and then also you've used like quite nice colors that go together. Have you kind of tried to tailor that information to also look appealing to a certain audience? And who is that? Absolutely. I think that's such a key. Um, if people don't understand the problem, then you've lost half of the battle. <laughs> so uh, we try to make information quite digestible and as short and succinct as possible. And then portray that in a nice way that uh, if someone's scrolling through their Instagram feed, hopefully it, um, you know, kind of shouts out to them. And the target audience, of course, is the B2B business. So um, our target audience isn't necessarily reachable through these social media platforms because we, we go about other ways to connect with them. 
But we would like to also connect with the younger public, um, the younger or, or people generally consuming fast fashion, because we need to help them to realize that overconsumption is not getting any better. Uh, the problem is huge. And we want to be able to educate um, them in particular. So it's really the Gen Z and the millennials who we target through our website and our social media. You hold a master, first class master's in chemical engineering, and then you worked as a consultant for many years for uh, companies such as ThyssenKorp, so very well known, but very different perspective, I'm sure, from being an entrepreneur in this industry. So what did you, what did you take out of those experiences and make the kind of unusual step from chemical engineering and consultancy to becoming a startup entrepreneur and founder? Um, I, I think being in a corporate, the things that bothered me the most was not being able to um, see uh, the change that I was making firsthand uh, because ThyssenKrupp is just so huge. Um, so it was actually the job I had after that, which was at BioBean, where I was working in, in a in an amazing startup, well-funded, um, doing things at scale, turning coffee waste into biofuels, as I mentioned. And um, I think it was there that I fell in love with the idea of being able to tackle a problem that I cared about. And at the time, it was coffee waste. Um, and and seeing Arthur's journey, because he was the, the founder of BioBean, really inspired me to want to do that myself at some point. I really like that you point to that point. Um, and what I noticed as well when I was doing a little bit of research is that you've had a lot of mentors. You've also been a mentor yourself um, and participated in a lot of, you know, accelerator programs um, and founder programs and stuff like that. Um, could you share a little bit about what the benefit of such an experience was? Was it like a practical learning or how did it help Clyderly develop and grow? Yeah, I think um, I'd probably answer that in two points. One, in relation to the advisors and mentors I'm so grateful to have received mentorship and support from many um, advisors throughout my journey whether that's old managers that I worked for me in the past I worked for in the past sorry or um, people I've met through the Berlin startup ecosystem so one I'm really grateful to them um, and two joining the accelerator programs was extremely beneficial because it just expanded that network. And I met even more, um, mentors and advisors who, who just understood the problem I was trying to solve, um, and how big it is and, and try and try and still try and help me, uh, throughout the journey. Um, so those programs are extremely valuable, not just for the network of, uh, mentors, but also for the network of other founders, because I think this journey is such a roller coaster that, if you can't share it with other people who are going through similar things, then it's it's uh, not the same. So uh, I'm really ben I really benefited from the network element of those programs. What does that networking and sharing experience look like in 2020 for you um, and beyond? Given that you know a lot of stuff is happening online or remotely right now. Yeah, I think it's a shame. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I'm uh, quite. Um, um, yeah, it's not it's not ideal that everything has had to be virtual this year. Uh, it's harder to um, certainly grow your network, but I think um, I took the opportunity to do as much as possible. And the the one upside to everything being virtual is I could attend, for example, last week an expo day based in Paris. Um, or ran from Paris, and then an hour later, uh, be judging a demo day from Berlin. Um, so the one benefit of this is you can attend lots of events. But yes, there is a, a difference in the networking effect that you get. 
one thing I found is people are much more open to communication uh, via LinkedIn. So if you do attend events, people do reach out after, or I reach out after and, you know, want to, and I want to connect. So I don't think it's necessarily diminished the networking effect, but it probably has, um, doesn't have the same impact as if you were standing on a stage or speaking uh, in person. What made you move to Berlin then? I mean, you're from London, which is a big fashion scene and, and there's a lot of the fashion companies are located and uh, you chose to set up the company here in Berlin. Um, that was many personal reasons. Um, my husband's from Germany and um, Brexit was certainly a huge factor in us moving sooner rather than later. Um, but also I think Berlin has such a great startup ecosystem and I am very convinced that if I had tried to do the same journey in, in London, I wouldn't have been able to meet so many people with a similar mindset. Um, you know, the UK is is probably a few years behind in terms of sustainability compared to Germany. So explaining the problem is much easier to people who already un- understand the issues with climate change. And um, I'm not saying the UK is that far behind, but certainly Germany has been recycling for a very long time. So um, Berlin is a great place to start a a business. That's quite interesting. And we've explored a lot of the difference, I think, between the startup scene in Berlin and America on this podcast. We haven't really talked so much about the difference between Germany and the UK. Uh, What else have you noticed is different? I feel like Berlin is a... It has the best of both. It's a big city. There's four million people, but at the same time, sometimes it feels like a village. And when you start to get to know people in the ecosystem, you very quickly realise everyone knows everyone else, um, which is nice because it's easier to kind of make your ground within this network. Whereas London is is just so ridiculously big that I'm not sure how easy that would have been for me to do so. So I think that's a big, big difference between both. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I also wanted to ask you about um, Tech and Colour, which you co-founded. So what was the um, you know, the, the origin story behind that? And, and how did you come get, get involved? Sure. Um, so Deborah Choi from uh, Horticure, both of us uh, did the Google Female Founder Programme um, last year. And we absolutely loved the network effect of now knowing 15 or 20 amazing women within the scene. And we really, we wanted to see what that would look like if that was um, a bit of a narrower group of women. So women from ethnically diverse backgrounds. And so we initially had looked to do a one-off event where we were just connecting uh, women from diverse backgrounds with investors mainly because this is uh, probably the hardest thing for women of our backgrounds to overcome is the lack of network uh, when you're looking for your first round, your friends and family round or your pre-seed round from Business Angels. And we wanted to help them overcome that by introducing them to these um, angels or, or early stage VCs. That then, due to COVID, changed into more of a sort of matchmaking service that we do behind the scenes. But we are now working on a different sort of a program. I guess the matchmaking was sort of the MVP to see if people were even interested. And um, we're now working on a few different ideas for next year with our supporters from Silicon Alley, such as Steph, Stephanie, um, Google for Startups, Techstars, London and Partners. So 
um, watch this space for next year. And as I understand, the um, program is all-encompassing. So you have people, you know, who come in as, you know, mentors or advisors, trusted experts, stuff like that, as well as people on the investment and maybe networking side and founders themselves. So it really is quite inclusive as well as who can be a part of that. Absolutely. And we've been so grateful to have had incredible investors on board, um, incredible allies who are happy to provide workshops. And, you know, um, to be honest, we were really overwhelmed and, and grateful that so many people took their time to apply and, and are taking time to give their, you know, free hour or two to, to these founders. So um, that's why we want to definitely concentrate our efforts a bit more on what we do next year. I was wondering, is there, uh, jumping back to Clyderly, is there an origin story of Clyderly? You know, was there an incident where you thought this surely can't go on and someone needs to fix this problem? Yes, I think um, I didn't, I kind of circled around it a little bit earlier, probably didn't go into enough detail. Um, so having had a background in the waste sector um, and as an engineer, I've been to many waste sites, which does not sound very glamorous at all, but I've I've seen it all in in my time as an engineer and I happened to take a trip to Tanzania because my parents were actually born there um visited for the first time as an adult uh, really seeing where we in inverted commas donate our uh, unwanted textiles really it's actually just sold to overseas buyers and then sold on the secondhand markets and those markets what probably received really decent high quality stuff 10 to 20 years ago are now being flooded with our old fast fashion items that are low quality and not good enough for them to wear. So ultimately, they have to be destroyed. Um, so we're essentially passing on our problem to third world countries. And uh, in landfills in Africa, there's an article specifically on Ghana. What happens is clothing doesn't decompose. Um, it, it's made out of synthetic fabrics such as polyester, um, and that takes over 400 years to decompose. So it ends up becoming this sort of brown toxic soup and and, and uh, polluting all of the local water supplies. So when I, I think that trip was probably the trigger um, because I, I kind of started to think about it a lot. I think that was the origin story for me. And do, do you think that uh, more young startup entrepreneurs and founders should look at those sorts of problems and trying to solve more global problems and make a business out of them to make, to make it sustainable? Uh, because it seems to me that um, there are a lot of great projects and great ideas out there, but maybe not all of them trying to make the world a better place. Do, do you think there's there's more there should be more of a mission, more of purpose in the startup community? Absolutely. I mean, everyone has a different purpose. I My personal purpose has always been sustainability. So this sounds um, strange, but at the age of 14, um, I was allowed to make a film for a school competition where we had to make a th film on anything. You could have chosen any topic. I was 14. Um, it was the early 2000s, and I chose to make a video on global warming. And had the chance to watch it in the local cinema and then show the entire school of a thousand people. And at the time, no one cared. No one thought it was a problem. And so things have changed so significantly. But one thing I ch chose to do was stick with that problem. You know, this is my personal passion. And this is the reason I became a chemical engineer. I can't speak for everyone else and say that they should also, um, you know, solve the world's problems. It really depends on your personal passion. What are the things that drive you to succeed? 
And if that is making the world a better place, then absolutely, you should certainly try and solve that problem through your business. How big is your team now, actually? Um, how many people do you have helping you on the project? Uh, we're seven now in total. And how does that breakup of responsibilities look like? Um, what are kind of key focuses within the business? Um, so I tend to do, obviously, product development and technical stuff. But actually, um, I also do the first discussion or, or take part in the first discussion that is with regards to sales because most brands want to know technically how it works <laughs> and they want to know the origin story. So it's probably best for me to start off telling that. Um, and then the rest of the team does various things from continuing the sales and closing them to, to marketing, continuous business development and everything else that goes around it. But I, I honestly could not do it without them. So I'm so grateful to have them all on board. And as the company grows and you grow as a leader, what do you think will be your priority going forward into into the coming years? And, and will it be communication as, as, you know, as part of the mix? I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one of the big things we've realized with Clyderly is that education around the topic is key. So communication with regards to education will probably one be one of the forefronts of what we do. Um, and as well as that, if if the world continues to be how it has been in 2020 and there are more hybrid events or less face-to-face -face interaction, then we all need to work to be better communicators. So that's what we're trying to do uh, um, as Clyderly. And I'm also trying to work on myself, um, also possibly trying to be more open um, as, a, as a startup founder. How would you describe your leadership approach right now? I've always been um, quite open and honest with uh, my team. And the reason for that is really, I look back to, you know, having worked in many different organizations and the places where I flourished the most was when my managers didn't micromanage me, but they allowed me to um, be challenged and trusted in me. So I tried to emulate that with uh, my role as a leader. Wonderful. And do, do you intend to do more media work, for instance? Because I could see there's uh, your story, the origin story and the purpose being, you know, quite, quite interesting for, for certain kind of media, newspapers, but also TV potentially. Is that something you're looking at for, for the coming year? Absolutely. So we've um, recently shot something for one of the German news channels where we're waiting for that to come out. And I'm sure there'll be um, a lot more within that space. And um, whilst I, um, of course, I'm really busy with, with Clyderly, I try to make myself as available for these things as possible because I'm not only doing this for the solution and for the business, but actually to help educate and make a change. So if I can do that through, you know, getting us as much media coverage as possible, then I will do that. Absolutely. Um, and has the media been interested in the story thus far? Yes. Um, we haven't actually tried to do any PR ourselves at all. Everything has been inbound, which people probably find really surprising. But I think the, the story resonates with people. People are starting to understand the issues around fast fashion, overconsumption, textile waste. Um, and so I'm, I'm, what I hope for is that one day um, people understand textile waste in the same way that they understand ocean plastics. Um, I think that's really um, the change I would like to see, and I'm sure that will happen soon. That's a good comparison. Yeah, I, I can see how people relate to that uh, comparison. Yeah. And as a final piece of communications advice, uh, what would you 
like to tell the audience? Um, I think I would say the uh, thing I've learned the most in the last few years is just to be authentic and be myself um, and not be afraid to tell personal stories because I think that bit of personality, those stories that you tell, those are the things actually people remember. Um, probably not the, 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 you know, the other stuff you told. And of course, if you can have some key facts up your sleeves so that you can uh, really nail those arguments in with um, concrete facts. I love that little bit at the end. I think having a tiny little proof point up your sleeve is the ultimate power move. <laughs> Alina, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. Thank you Appreciate it. And thanks for listening. Are you passionate about a topic that you want to make heard more strongly? A good way to start is by building your personal brand. Become unignorable and check out Oliver's book offer, including four bonuses to set you up for success at oliverouse.com backslash unignorable.